Well, good afternoon again on the second day. The wind is not blowing in here, at least. I think April, in what I've read and experienced here, is probably the windiest month of the year. Everything's turning green and starting to be beautiful, but the wind takes away from it a bit. <coughs> There's a sign-up sheet on the table at the back of the hall here for the Sunday dinner uh, tomorrow. Tomorrow is uh, 1 o'clock service, and then the dinner will be at 6.30. This is not a potluck, but a sit-down dinner, and sign-up sheet there for whatever dishes you girls work out. We're going to have special music. It will be sung by a congregation of God choir. I just wait a minute. Uh, I, I'm, I'm making this sound like a big deal, congregation of God choir. And indeed it is. It's nice always to hear music performed. But I think the words in this are sufficiently important that I'm going to read it to you ahead of time. Maybe we should always print out the special music. Uh, Gloria has done that for me because I'm sitting behind here and my hearing isn't all that great anyway. And it helps to have the words to follow so I can hear it better. This is entitled, The Days of Elijah. <clears throat> it says, These are the days of Elijah declaring the word of the eternal. These are the days of your servant Moses. I found it interesting. I saw an article this morning on the alternative website that was comparing what's happening to America today to what happened to Egypt. It was a YouTube film, so I didn't watch it, but it caught my eye. Uh, the difference being, of course, God is going to deliver his spiritual Israel, the church, but physical Israel now is going into, not out of, but into captivity. So uh, it's similar, but, but a different situation. Anyway, all these prophecies that we talk about, Moses, Elijah, and so on, are in this song. So I think that's wonderful. These are the days of great trials, of famine, and darkness, and sword. Still we are the voice in the desert crying, Prepare ye the way of the Lord. Behold, he comes riding on the cloud, shining like the sun at the trumpet call. Lift your voice at the year of Jubilee, and out of Zion's hill salvation comes. These are the days of Ezekiel, prophecies being fulfilled. And these are the days of your servant David, rebuilding the temple of praise. And these are the days of the harvest, the wheat fields are white in your world, and we are the laborers in your vineyard, declaring the word of the eternal. And in the chorus again, Behold, he comes riding on the cloud, shining like the sun at the trumpet call. Lift your voice at the year of jubilee, and out of Zion's hill salvation comes. So, uh, the choir will now sing this.
time I remember seeing that performed, it was done by a Brooklyn black choir. And uh, boy, did they get into it. Gloria's trying to get us state Israelites to, to kind of do some of that. And, and that's fine. Good, good luck. <laughs> but uh, it comes so natural to those people uh, as a race. I remember uh, being in, in Africa and seeing people singing just these hymns. I think I mentioned this not too long ago. And in the South African congregation, they were mostly white and descendants of the Dutch. And uh, probably even more conservative in some ways than we are. Uh, but then in Kenya and uh, Namibia and other places I went, wherever, we would sing these hymns out of this book. And I'm telling you what... They were moving with the music and waving and even clapping, and it's just in them. And it's a beautiful thing. <laughs> it really is. Uh, I found it inspiring. But this uh, this is great music. It uh, reflects an awful lot of the things in the prophecies that we talk about and where, where salvation is coming from. So I do appreciate you doing that. Let's go back to Exodus 12, where we left off yesterday. Uh, we got down through uh, verse 10, I guess, because it was discussing the Passover lamb to be uh, slain and eaten there overnight, nothing remaining till the morning, and then if there was any left, it was to be burned with fire. Then it goes on and picks it up in verse 11, and shows the how and the why and the meaning thereof from there on down. Verse 11, he says, And thus shall you eat it with your loins girded, your shoes on your feet, and your staff in your hand. You shall eat it in haste. It is the Lord's Passover. So there is a reason for all of this. Uh, they have been told ahead of time that they would be leaving that night. And they were told to put the blood on the doorpost so that it would be there for God to recognize it was the Passover blood that was over their doorway. We'll read about that here in a moment, if we didn't already. But they would be ready to be ready to depart. It's hard to eat with a staff in your hand, but if you have it in one hand, you can manage to eat with the other hand. Uh, that is a possibility. Now, maybe they laid it aside against the table and used both hands, but it was right there. The point is, they were to be in readiness, ready to go. For I will pass through the land of Egypt this night, and will smite all the firstborn in the land of Mitzrayim, both man and beast. And against all the gods of Mitzrayim, I will execute judgment I am the Eternal. So he was going to pass through at midnight and kill all firstborn. This would be the thing that would cause Pharaoh then not to have a hardened heart, but to urge them out, and in fact order them out, as we shall see, and that they were to go in haste. They were so upset when this occurred that they would have started killing the Israelites had they not gotten out of sight in a hurry. Of course, we're told in Matthew 24 that there's coming a time when we bleed to Zion and we'd better hurry. Uh, so it's a similar thing, and it could be at Passover time. Very likely uh, could be. Now, he's starting into describing what that night meant, and what the next day meant. A very, very important day in his plan. 
And the blood shall be to you for a token upon the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you. And the plague shall not be upon you to destroy you when I smite the land of Mitzrayim. This day shall be to you for a memorial. Notice that. For decades, the church overlooked that. We made the next day a memorial and a Sabbath and a holy day. Uh, not that one. But here it's talking about that same night. It hasn't changed, has it? The context is still that night. That one, that day, this day, the 14th, they've done the Passover at sundown. They stayed up all night till midnight. Then the, uh, Christ was going to destroy the firstborn, and Pharaoh would get up, and there would be weeping and wailing and screaming all over the place, and they would be urged to leave that night. So they didn't leave the next morning. They left that night at midnight, or shortly thereafter. And that day, this day that we're talking about, shall be to you for a memorial, and you shall keep it a feast. To the eternal throughout your generations, you shall, then he emphasizes it, you shall keep it a feast by an ordinance forever. Which day? We're still on the 14th here. Nothing has changed. Seven days shall you eat unleavened bread. Even the first day you shall put away leaven out of your houses. For whosoever eats unleavened bread from the first day until the seventh day, that soul shall be cut off from Israel. During this seven days that we're going through right now, leavening represents sin. Because of puffed up pride and vanity and ego that human beings tend to have. Now it doesn't represent sin the rest of the year. And in fact, uh, it represents good and righteousness through the rest of the year, not as vanity, but as Christ, a symbol of Christ that goes throughout the entire loaf, and everything is leavened. So, most of the year, leaven is a good thing, but here for seven days, it pictures vanity and ego and sin that must go away. Sin cuts us off from God. The blood of Christ removes that sin and puts us back close to God. Without his sacrifice, we could not be close to God. So the parallels here are amazing, really. And in the first day, there shall be a holy convocation. So a commanded assembly, it is then a holy day holy convocation. And on the seventh day there shall be a holy convocation to you. No manner of work shall be done in them, save that which every man must eat, that only may be done of you. It's okay to cook on the high days, uh, except atonement, of course, but that's the only work. We can't go about our regular duties and so on. And you shall observe the Feast of Unleavened Bread, for in this self-send day have I brought your armies out of the land of Mitzrayim. Therefore shall you observe this day in your generations by an ordinance forever. Hasn't changed context yet. It's still the 14th. Everything that was important to happen essentially happened that night and the next day. You look at the New Testament. Christ was taken after the Passover service, beginning of the 14th. At midnight, they came to get him, and he was the firstborn of God, the firstborn of God's people. And he was cut off that night. He was cut away from the disciples. He was taken into captivity, and they began torturing him that night, the 14th, and through the next day 
until he was finally hung up and died on the stake on the 14th. What happened on the 15th? Nothing. He was dead and buried before the 14th ended. The next day was just a day. It was in unleavened bread, but it was the second day of unleavened bread, and nothing happened. Now, which night should be always remembered as a memorial and an ordinance forever? The one that they kept the Passover on, the night they were sprung from captivity, the night they began to leave and spoil the Egyptians, as we'll read here in a moment, that was the night to be much remembered. That's the night they were released. It wasn't the next night. It was that night. And he tells us that here in verse 18, lest there be any mistake. In the first month, on the 14th day of the month, at even at the beginning of the 14th, you shall eat unleavened bread until the one and twentieth day of the month at even. The beginning of uh, the 21st. At even. Just like it was the beginning of the 14th. So what do you have? 14th, beginning at sundown, of the on going into the 14th. 14, 15, 16, 17, 18, 19, 20 is seven days. So as the sun goes down beginning the 21st, you're done. You have seven days. Makes it very clear here, those seven days, Ezekiel calls it the Feast of Seven Days, not eight. We kept eight. Passover, and then a donut and pizza day, and then seven more days of unleavened bread. Now, why would you have a donut and pizza day, the day that Christ is being tortured and crucified? That day, our thoughts should be on him and what he's doing for us. This is very clear when you read what it says. I think I told you, I, I remember back in the 60s when I was in Miami, I don't remember which year particularly, but that was from 66 to 70. One spring I was studying this, and I began to read it, and it didn't fit what we were doing in the church. And I I thought, this, what we're doing doesn't seem right. This seems different. What, what's going on here? And then the, what I reasoned was, those guys in Pasadena are smarter than I am, and they must have it figured out right. I just don't understand. I'm young and not all that bright. I must just not be getting it. Well, I found out <clears throat> decades later, even though I wasn't all that smart, I was getting it. <laughs> I was reading what it said and believing it. And still to this day, most people are keeping today as a holy day instead of just the weekly Sabbath. Because they don't get that the 14th was the memorial. It was the holy day. It was the day that everything happened. And in the New Testament, it was the exact same pattern. Everything important happened on the 14th. The 15th is just a day of unleavened bread. And he makes it very clear there. 14th, beginning of the 14th to the beginning of the 21st is seven days. Those are the entire time. I know the objections always there with Leviticus 23, which could sound different than that. But that's explained as well. The first day is the important one, and it's the day that Christ did everything for us. And then the next six are man's days. Six is the day is the number of man. So, Christ did his job on the first day, and then we do the job of putting sin out the next six, specifically. Now, we should be putting it out on the first one, when he was killed for us, but we have six more that are the days of man to do what he should do. 
Christ did his big job, then we do what is our part, the next six. And Leviticus 23 fits within that. And it's the only scripture in the Bible that you can find any opportunity to say it's different than what we're reading right here. The rest of the book, the rest of the places it's mentioned in the New Testament, it's all on the 14th. We all know this, uh, and I wrote a long article about it, but it doesn't hurt us to review it, meet in due season, and know for certain we're doing the right thing in the right way. Uh, that's important. So, beginning of 14th to beginning of 21st is seven days. Seven days shall there be no leaven found in your homes, for whosoever eats that which is leavened, even that soul shall be cut off from the congregation of Israel, whether he be a stranger or born in the land. Everybody was expected to keep it, even though they might have not have been part of Israel. You shall eat nothing leavened in all your habitations. You shall eat unleavened bread. Some have tried to say that any kind of leavening uh, was not to be in your house. It is clearly unleavened bread, that which was puffed up, that which was baked or had risen and then been baked and was puffed up. A, ba a box of baking soda sitting in the back of your refrigerator that's there to take odors out of the fridge is not leavening, and you're not going to eat it. Now, it can leaven something. It can make it rise. But unless you put it in a recipe and let it rise and cook it and let it rise more, it won't rise. It is a leavening agent, but it is not leavened bread. They carried their leavening with them. They did not have time to allow it to rise. So they had the dough made and didn't put the leavening in it. They had to leave in a hurry, so it was still unleavened. I have an argument against things we did in the church, and this might freak somebody out, but why do you need to throw away baking powder in a can or something in your freezer that is not leavened bread? It is a an agent that can be used to leaven, but leavening is puffing up, and unless it's puffing up something that you intend to eat, it's just neutral. That's all it is. And I don't know that you need to throw all that out and then go rebuy it because you have three cans of it left over. If you use it for baking, yes. That's what the symbolism is, is the puffing up, the vanity, the ego. A can of baking powder is not puffed up. It is capable of puffing something up. I think we took that to an extreme, uh, and I think we took cleaning all the leavening out of our houses to an extreme. There were women who spent three or four or five days vacuuming under all the baseboards, taking the couch apart, uh, cleaning out toasters, just getting every possible crumb out of the house. The justification was that for that was that we have all kinds of sins, big and little, and we got to get rid of the big ones. we got to get rid of the little ones, too. So the crumbs symbolically represented little sins. Uh, you can get so busy trying to do that, examining the whole house and the car, that you forget about the sin in you. We're to be examining ourselves those days before Passover, seeing where our sin is, not spending all our attention cleaning a house or a car, because that takes all your mentality to do that. What is most important? 
getting sin out of your life, recognizing sin in it ahead of the Passover, and then getting it out during the Passover. So, we can get so busy with physical things, we forget the spiritual. Remember the story of Mary and Martha? And one was just busy, 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 doing, 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 and the other one was sitting listening to Christ. And, you know, it's good to serve, it's good to bring water, it's good to, to help, but let's not forget what's important here. You know, do those things as necessary and sit down and listen, because something important is being said. So, the physical is good and can be done, but let's not forget the spiritual. And I think sometimes we put the cart before the horse in the decades back in Worldwide, now, yes, we should still put leavening out. And I put all the bread and everything that I could find that, that had leavening in it that was food. Uh, but not things that were not yet used for leavening uh, because they didn't pub anything up. Now, if your conscience bothers you, you can go ahead and can keep putting out baking soda and baking powder. Uh, you know, it came to the point where we shouldn't drink beer because there's yeast in it. It's not the days of unleavened beer. It's the days of unleavened bread. But we we can get, if we're not careful, pharisaical. You know, where everything physical is what is important as opposed to truly the spiritual. So we need to find the right balance there. Yes, put the leavening out. Uh, you don't need any cookies or bread or or things with leavening, pizza crust, whatever. Uh, we're to put those things out. Anyway, enough of my rant. But I think we need to understand and find the balance in these things. Uh, I don't think God cares about a can of baking powder on your shelf or in your freezer. Uh, now, other people have taken all the bread and baked goods out of their house and set them out across their property line, and as soon as the seven days were over, they brought them back. Well, I do think the symbolism there is kind of wrong. If they represented sin and pride and vanity and ego, and you set them out and then you brought them back, what good did it do to put sin out if you go right back to it? So they need to be out and gone and not brought back. Uh, verse 21, Then Moses called for all the elders of Israel and said to them, Drown and take you a lamb according to your families and kill the Passover. And take a bunch of hyssop and dip it in the blood that is in the basin, and strike the lintel and the two side posts with the blood that is in the basin, and none of you shall go out at the door of his house until the morning. Now they were told to be ready to go at midnight. They were told then to put the blood on the doorpost and the lintel, and not to go out till morning. But they left before sunup. They left at midnight. Well, shortly after, because the firstborn were killed at midnight, and then word went back and forth, so it took a little while. But uh, after midnight, you could say, is morning. We do today. It turns from p.m. to a.m. at midnight. Uh, so, whatever it be, they were, they were to be prepared to stay in the house all night long, if need be. But if the word came, they had their shoes and their staff for a reason. They were to be packed and ready to go out the door. So I don't think there's a contradiction there. For the eternal will pass through to smite the Egyptians, and when he sees the blood upon the lintel and on the two side posts, he will pass over the door and will not suffer the destroyer to come into your houses to smite you. That's why we... Keep the Passover as a remembrance of Christ shedding his blood for us, and we come under his protection. Nobody else does. 
understand that the world out here around us lives by time and chance. Whatever happens to them, happens to them. But once you become a part of the body of Christ, he looks over you carefully. And nothing that happens, happens without him agreeing to it. Bad or good, a blessing that comes from him, or a punishment, or a curse, or sometimes an accident, things happen to us. He sees it ahead of time, and he takes care of it many, many times. And sometimes he lets something happen because we need a test, or a trial, or a punishment, or whatever. But you and I don't live by time and chance. We are guarded over by guardian angels from God who are assigned to take care of us. And they do. Well, sometimes some of us die. But God saw that ahead of time and let it happen. Now, you and I can probably cite times in our lives when there was absolute intervention. I was over in the Bahamas flying one time. I've told this story two or three times, but it was so real and so much to life. Because we'd flown on a small single-engine airplane over to an out island to visit uh, a prospective member who had written in. And there was no airline service there, just you hop from island to island. So we'd seen the man, visited with him, or headed back to Nassau, the main city, and riding along, you know, looking down at the islands and the beautiful water and whatnot, and suddenly the plane just went straight up, just instantly, straight up, and just as it did, another plane flew right under us, and the pilot got scared. He said, I didn't do anything. The wheel just jerked out of my hands and went up. Because we were on a head-on collision course. That plane was just, went right under. I could have spit on it. And he didn't get over that. He managed to fly it in, put down at the airport in Nassau. He didn't even say bye. He turned and said, i got to go have a drink. He took off for the bar. <laughs> That's how much it scared him. Now, does God hit me? I believe he did. I believe it was my own heart. I was even saying, I didn't do that. It just happened. I think he wanted me alive for his reasons. There have been other times of it, a car accidents, pullovers, whatever, not even been scratched. Uh, I could go on and on, a lot of times. And you probably can too, where God has intervened somehow, some way in your lives since you've been part of God's church. He watches over us and takes care of us. And nothing happens to us without him saying, okay, let it happen. Or, don't let it happen. And go either way. Thankfully, we're his. And whatever he decides is best for us, no matter what. Sometimes, if we die, maybe it's best for us. Maybe we've grown and overcome enough that in his judgment, we'll be in his kingdom. Why do you need to live any longer than that? If you're going to be in the kingdom of God, it don't matter when you die. I know that's bad grammar, but it don't. It doesn't. So, when they put that blood over their door, that was a sign to God that they were his. They weren't the rest of the world out there, they were his. And he would take care of them. The destroyer will not come. And you shall observe this thing for an ordinance to you and to your sons forever. <clears throat> so, he went through and told them to kill the Passover. Then he went through and told them how important that night and day were. Then he comes down in 
gives more explanation, but he's still talking about the same night, right? About putting the blood on the door that night. So he hasn't changed to the 15th year. It should come to pass when you come in the land which the eternal will give you, according as he has promised, that you shall keep this service on the 14th. And it shall come to pass when your children shall say to you, What do you mean by this service? That you shall say, It is the sacrifice of the eternal's Passover, who passed over the houses of the children of Israel in Egypt, when he smote the Egyptians and delivered our houses. And the people bowed the head and worshipped. Now that's what I said earlier about the music. He's already blown the church apart. Now he is going to gather his remnant and protect them, the ones keeping the Passover, who are doing it in the right attitude and manner, circumspectly according to his will and purpose. And the world is going to suffer death and destruction, our nation. That's coming next. So he's going to protect one group while the rest are annihilated. Just like Mithraim or Egypt were. The children of Israel went away and did as he commanded Moses and Aaron. So did they. And it came to pass at midnight... The Eternal smote all the firstborn in the land of Mithraim, from the firstborn of Pharaoh that sat on his throne, unto the firstborn of the captive that was in the dungeon, and all the firstborn of cattle. Now their cattle have been decimated by the plagues already, and what were left, the firstborn died of. Pharaoh rose up in the night, he and all his servants and all the Mithraimites, and there was a great cry in Egypt, for there was not a house where there was not one dead. Every house had a dead person. Now, you talk about screaming and wailing. That would have created an uproar like no one had ever seen before. And Pharaoh called for Moses and Aaron by night, right after midnight, and said, Rise up. And get you forth from among my people. He assumed, I guess, they were in bed. No, they were standing there with their staff in their hand, ready to go, knowing that this was going to happen at midnight. You think you're going to slept when you're going to be running for your life? No, they were still awake. Get you forth from among my people, both you and the children of Israel, and go, serve the Eternal as you have said. Not just you, Moses and Aaron. Take all your people with you. Get them out of here. Take your flocks and your herds, as you have said, and be gone. <laughs> and bless me also. <laughs> I think that's a funny postscript, really. The man was so terrified, so bewildered, so scared, that he even asked for their blessing. So he recognized on some level that their God was bigger than all of his gods put together. He can do this. And the Egyptians were urgent upon the people. Urgent probably is uh, not an adequate word there. They were demanding, hurry, get gone. We have just lost our children. We don't want to see you ever again that they might send them out of the land in haste. For they said, We be all dead men. Now, I'm sure they had lost some during the plagues. And now every house lost the firstborn. And the cattle lost their firstborn. And they could see that if they didn't get rid of these Israelites, they'd all be dead. And the people took their dough before it was leavened, their kneading troughs being bound up in their clothes upon their shoulders. I suspect that they had probably sourdough was the way they leavened their bread. And they hadn't put it in to cause it to rise yet. They did that probably before they went to bed usually. So it would be risen by morning. They didn't put it in there. They just put it on the kneading troughs, battered up in their clothes on their shoulders, and took off. 
And the children of Israel did according to the word of Moses, and they took of the Egyptians jewels of silver, jewels of gold, uh, fine clothing, and the Eternal gave the people favor in the sight of the Egyptians, so that they lent to them such things as they required, and they spoiled the Egyptians. They were so anxious to get rid of them. They didn't know whether urging them to go and telling them, get out of here, would be enough. So they brought out their gold and their silver and their finest clothes and gave them to them. Here, they were paying them to go. And the Eternal gave the people favor on the side of the Mitzrayimites, so that they lent to them, oh, I read that, uh, verse 37, And the children of Israel journeyed from Ramses, where they were living, to Succoth, about 600,000 on foot that were men beside children. I assume that means beside women and children. So we've estimated there had to have been close to 3 million people there if there were 600,000 men. And every family had some kids. You remember when Moses was born, Pharaoh expressed that they have so many kids and they, they're so lively. We try to kill the boy kids and they've already birthed them and hid them before we even get there. They're so fast. So they probably had quite a few kids. And a mixed multitude went up also with them. Uh, probably some Mitzrayimites, some who were maybe slaves of other peoples or races that the Egyptians had there with them. doesn't say, but a mixture of people went with them. And flocks and herds and very much cattle. Now we have said in the past that they left that night and then journeyed all on the 14th and arrived at Succoth, where they spent the night, and there they left Mitzrayim. And that was the night to be much observed. Now think about, or much remembered. Think about that a moment. You were up all day the 13th, because you got up in the morning as usual, and then you worked getting ready for the Passover all through the 13th. Then you sacrificed the Passover beginning of the 14th, and you stayed up till midnight ready to go, and then the cry came and you left, got your flocks and herds together, got your stuff you were taking from the Egyptians together, and fled. So you'd have been going all night that night, and then you'd have spent the next day, all of the 14th, getting to Succoth by nightfall. By then you have been up at least 36 hours. Anybody want a party? <laughs> They've got a bite to eat, unleavened, and laid down on the ground and went to sleep. They didn't party that night. Not, not after you've been up 36 hours. You're not going to party. All the excitement was done. It had been done on the night of the 14th and during the 14th. Now you wanted to rest. Next day, they lined up and left. But they had already left where they lived. They had already fled. They had already traveled a day. That was the time that they were released. That's when God did the miracle. He did no miracle at Succoth. All they had to get up and have breakfast and line up and march. It was all they had to do. It was the 25 hours before that were full of events that needed to be remembered. What did he tell them to remember? That they had done the Passover, that they had put the blood on the doorposts, and they were to continue to do that. It was the things that happened that night that he said needed to be done forever. Not what happened at our so-called night to be much remembered. Which one do we remember? I remember Passover night a lot more than I do the next night. Don't you? The night our Savior was killed, or the night he was taken and tortured and then killed the next day. That's the important day. He didn't die on the 15th. He died on the 14th. 
Everything that was important to happen had happened by the end of the 14th. He was dead and buried. The next day, the disciples were sitting around saying, Now what do we do? What do you think to do? He was gone. So what's to be remembered about that? Nothing. Now we had it all wrong. Now where was I here? And they baked unleavened cakes of the dough, which they brought forth out of Mitzrayim, for it was not leavened, because they were thrust out and could not carry, neither had they prepared for themselves any food. They prepared the Passover meal, but they hadn't prepared food for the next day. And it was unleavened. So they ate flat cakes. Now the sojourning of the children of Israel who dwelt in Mitzrayim was 430 years. And it came to pass at the end of 430 years, even the self-same day it came to pass, that all the hosts of the Eternal went out from the land of Mitzrayim. So they were there exactly 430 years from the time Jacob came in until they left the night of the Passover. That's the night to be remembered. The anniversary of when you got out of there. You were thrust out. It is a night to be much remembered or observed unto the eternal. Bring them out from the land of Egypt. This is that night of the eternal to be observed of all the children of Israel in their generations. That's the That's the ordinance. That's the one that chapter 12 mentioned as being that night, the 14th. Wasn't the 15th. And the Eternal said to Moses and Aaron, this is the ordinance of the Passover. So that's the ordinance, was Passover night. There shall no stranger eat thereof. Therefore, we don't have anyone who has not been repented and baptized, partake of the Passover service. They can observe, but until they are formally a part of God's church through repentance and baptism and laying on of hands, they are not to partake of it. But every man, because it does not yet apply, you see, they might be heading there, they might be going to be baptized, but you know, a baby is never born unless it's conceived. It, it just doesn't happen. No baby has ever been born that wasn't conceived. And once they are conceived, they will be born or become a miscarriage. Because once that conception occurs, something has to happen. And it starts happening. There's a lot of girls who wish it hadn't. But it is anyway. So once you are repentant, baptized, and have the laying on of hands whereby God conceives you with his spirit, there is a life there, a spirit life there, that has just been uh, started, conceived. Now there's no going you can't get unconceived once that happens. you got to grow. Now, once that happens, we need to understand that is our one and only chance. Once a baby is conceived in its mother's womb, it will either live or die. The same is true spiritually. Once you make that step to be part of the congregation of God, his people, the bride of Christ, the 144,000, is what you were conceived to be part of. And if you stop growing at any point and become spiritually dead, quit, get the bad attitude, whatever, and quit growing toward birth, then you can't be in the kingdom of God. You become a spiritual miscarriage. So we only get one chance. We don't get three or four or five or six. 
Once we're conceived, we have to either be born into the kingdom of God at the resurrection or go to the lake of fire. One of the two. This is our chance. Just like that physical baby. One chance. Either got to grow and be born or die and become a miscarriage. God has made a perfect symbolism there of the spiritual side. And it doesn't hurt us to be reminded of that, because how many in the last 30 years have died on the vine, or have gone back into their former life, or their Protestant churches, or whatever, but the spirit life in them that was engendered is no longer growing. And they're in serious jeopardy of missing out on the kingdom of God. Now, if they go into the tribulation and wake up and repent, God is always willing to forgive. But boy, that'll be a tough way to learn, won't it? And then die as a martyr. Your blood crying out from the ground, as the book of Revelation says. This is important. He goes through and he explains it. Explains it once, then he goes through it again. Verse 44, but every man's servant that is bought for money, when you have circumcised him, then shall he eat thereof. So circumcision was something that God gave to the Israelites, and someone who came to be part of their society <coughs> had to go through physical circumcision in order to partake of the Passover. We have to go through circumcision of the heart and conversion then we can partake of the Passover. Physical circumcision means nothing today. Paul said that. said circumcision is nothing. It no longer counts except circumcision of the heart. We have to be cut to the heart and repent of our way of thinking and the world's way of thinking and live a different way. So the physical circumcision back then had that meaning, the circumcision of the heart today. A foreigner and a hired servant shall not eat thereof. In one house shall it be eaten. You shall not carry forth anything of flesh abroad out of the house, neither shall you break a bone thereof. Christ had no broken bones. He said there in the psalm, he could tell all his bones, he could see his bones, they'd strip the flesh off so bad he could see the bones in his hands and arms and legs. But none of them were broken. So the bones here either. The symbolism carries forward to him so beautifully. And the congregation of Israel shall keep it. And when a stranger shall sojourn with you and will keep the Passover to the eternal, let all his males be circumcised and then let him come near and keep it. And he shall be as one that is born in the land, for no uncircumcised person shall eat thereof. Now Paul reiterates this there in Romans 11, where he says that the Gentiles can be grafted in. They may not be blood Israelites. But he says it doesn't matter when it comes to conversion and being part of God's family and part of God's kingdom. Race means nothing. Because anybody can repent, no matter what color their skin or hair, and become part of what God is doing, then they become a spiritual Israelite, whether physical or not. And in the kingdom of people think, well, because I'm a blood Israelite, then I'm important above the Gentiles. No, you're not. It makes no difference whatever. In the kingdom of God, when he makes up the twelve tribes of twelve thousand from each uh, as a spiritual designation, if the, let's say it's the tribe of Dan, there will be people there who have some original spiritual blood of Dan, probably. There will be some there that are black or yellow or brown. And even the apostles themselves will not be over the tribe from 
what their physical lineage on the earth was. Because the twelve apostles are to be over the twelve tribes. And some of them were brothers. So they may have both been, let's say, of the tribe of Issachar. The one will be over one of the twelve tribes, and another one over another of the twelve. So they won't be blood as a designation in the kingdom of God. God can place us in whichever tribe he so chooses, no matter what tribe we were of on this earth. Now, their tribes back then were cleaner than ours, because we've had intermarriage back and forth between the tribes and between other peoples, and none of us are pure anymore. I would hate for Christ to put me in whichever tribe part of me is. Because he'd have to divide me up. Because <laughs> I'm Heinz 57. I have all kinds of different blood coursing through my veins. That mean, makes no difference, whatever. It's the Spirit of God in our heart and mind that is important, not our physical lineage. No more does that mean anything. It did at a time when it was a physical covenant only. Now, it makes no difference because it's a spiritual covenant. Circumcision was the way they delineated that back then. Circumcision of the heart, baptism, uh, conception of the Holy Spirit is what does it today. Verse 49, one law shall be to him that is homeborn, and unto the stranger that sojourns among you. Thus did all the children of Israel, as the Eternal commanded in Moses and Aaron, so did they. And it came to pass the selfsame day, still talking about the 14th, that the Eternal did bring the children of Israel out of the land of Mitzrayim by their armies. Army just means all of them together. They left their physical separate dwellings and all headed for the place that had been set aside so that they could become organized. That was Succoth. They were fleeing as individual families. You know, here comes one and here comes another one and you're all going there. The next morning they got all lined up in rows of tens and hundreds and thousands and began marching. But they had already left where they lived. They had already left the Mitzrayimites behind on the 14th, the night of the 14th, and through the day of the 14th. So they were there, prearranged, and it had all been set up ahead of time how they would march out. Captains of tens, captains of hundreds, all that had been set up ahead of time. So all they had to do was line up like they had been told to and then go from there. If I tell you, we're all going to leave St. George tonight, and we're going to figure out how to get to where? Phoenix by morning. We'd all jump in our cars, we'd all leave separately, and we'd pass each other back and forth, and then we'd be in Phoenix by morning. Then we would gather up and go as a group instead of as individuals. That's what happened there. They left. They were gone. That was the night that was exciting and to be remembered. The Eternal spoke to Moses, saying, Sanctify to me all the firstborn, whatsoever... Uh, opens the womb among the children of Israel, both of men and of beasts, it is mine. So he killed all the firstborn of the Egyptians, and then he took all the firstborn of Israel to be his. Now Christ is the, we're, we're considered the firstborn in the New Testament, right? The church. Christ being the first of the firstborn. But we're still considered the firstborn. 
So the symbolism moves from the Old Testament where he designated physical firstborn to spiritual firstborn will be in the kingdom of God. And Moses said to the people, Remember this day in which you came out from Mitzrayim, out of the house of bondage, for by strength of hand the Eternal brought you out from this uh, place. There shall no leavened bread be eaten. This day came you out in the month Adin. That's easy. When did he spring them? When was his strength of hand shown? Midnight that night. The strength of his hand killed all the Egyptian firstborn and caused Pharaoh and all the people to say, Get out of here now. That's when his strength was shown. That was the night of his power. Next night was sleep, eat, and continue the journey. But the excitement was over. <laughs> well, not quite. A few days later, they went across the Red Sea, and there was some more excitement. But the excitement of that night was the key. And that's the day that God says they came out on the 14th. And it shall be when the Eternal shall bring you into the land of the Canaanites and all these other nations that you are to keep this. Seven days shall you eat unleavened bread, not one evening, the day's interruption, and then seven more. Seven days total. And it'll be a feast to the Eternal. He reiterates, verse 7, seven days. No leavened bread be seen, neither be in your quarters, uh, for seven days. And you shall show your son in that day, saying, This is done because of that which the Eternal did to me when I came forth out of Mitzrayim. It will be for a sign to you upon your hand, for memorial between your eyes, and Eternal's law may be in your mouth, for with a strong hand has he brought you out of Mitzrayim. So the strong hand was the night of the 14th. After that, they just marched on their own power, right? They had no power to leave until the power of God was shown. Then they were to remove, to be gone. And that's the ordinance they keep in a season from year to year. Not the 15th. Well, that's pretty much the time I have, but I wanted to get through that much uh, and show how important the Passover is that we kept, and yesterday was the day to be much remembered, the night of the 14th and yesterday. Today's just a weekly Sabbath. Still a holy time, still a holy day, but it's just a weekly Sabbath. It has no meaning beyond that. It's the second day of unleavened bread we got five more to go. So we don't have to keep eating. Eight, I mean. But we can keep eating, too. Let's go do that.